0: Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So, last week, I looked at a debate between Dr. Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris on the topic of evil and morality. This week, I want to do more of an in-house look at the concept of culture war and how to apply certain biblical passages. Now, what I'm going to be responding to is a recent episode of The White Horse Inn. It's a podcast that I've subscribed to and I've listened to for many years. It is led by Dr. Michael Horton, who is a professor at Westminster Seminary in California. Now, on this episode, he also has Bob Hiller, who's a senior pastor of uh, Community Lutheran Church in California. And Walter Strickland, who is assistant professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. So those three individuals, whom I greatly respect and are quite quite smart, I have some thoughts about the things they say regarding certain passages of Scripture being applied to the culture, and they specifically address things such as Christian nationalism or theonomy or the Christian prince or civil magistrate and how god's law or promises apply to nations today if they do at all. And so I recommend you take a look at their episode. It came out on January 14th and it's about 40 minutes long, but I'm just going to play through play through a section of it basically in about uh, an 18 minute section that I wanted to go through, so we might not get through all of it today. Uh, I don't know if it'll take two or three podcast episodes, but uh, I think it'll be very good to talk about this. And I'm going to try to avoid talking past each other. So I'm going to let them know about my response here. And hopefully we can have a little bit of a back and forth and and maybe some clarification on a few things. And so my goal here today is simply to offer their perspective and then some counterpoints from uh, the perspective that I hold. And so with that... I wanted to just go ahead and dive right in. So we're going to start at basically four minutes in when they're really getting into the first passage that they want to look at. So let's go ahead and begin.
1: Looking at these passages, let's begin with the one I mentioned, Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is often used to justify the idea of a national repentance. It's almost as if the nation has a soul. Hmm. It's funny, you can get this on the right from all kinds of preachers every 4th of July, but you can also hear it in some of the sermons of Martin Luther King Jr., where you get the prodigal son is America, hmm. and to come back to the father. It's interesting how in American preaching, it goes so deep, and it's so long, it's so much a part of the American civil religion. Of all Americans, of all preaching, it seems, across the board, that passages like this are taken to mean if a nation, any nation, especially God's favored nation, claims this verse, it can be God's covenant people. And what is the problem in interpreting that verse that way?
0: All right, I want to stop there because he said a few things that I don't necessarily agree with. There are some things I do agree with, okay? Um, we have to always be careful in taking a passage and doing a name it, claim it kind of thing. We struggle with this as individuals. Many of the passages, there's some from, uh, from Jeremiah, uh, coffee cup verses, There's the, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's often misapplied in a lot of ways. So, and this is particularly true with the Old Testament as well. And so, really, a lot of this does come down to how one applies and interprets an Old Testament text. Now, we'll get into this more later, but what I would begin saying is, when you look at a text of the Old Testament, and it says something like, my people, this is where you have to look at the different covenants that we live in. So obviously under the old covenant, my people refers to the covenant people of Israel. Now God's people have since become a little different under the new covenant. It now includes Jews and Gentiles who are united in Christ. That is the people of God today. And when it comes to any covenant, there's always a people, a land, and a God. All right? And the question is always going to be, which one is it? So God's people were a specific people in a specific land with him as their God. All right. So in that application, 2 Chronicles 7.14, King Solomon's dedication of the temple and his uh, his prayer to the Lord, that applied, certainly, to the people of Israel living at that time. Now, how would one go about taking that verse as a modern Christian today, and applying it. Well, under the new covenant, who are God's people? The elect, okay, the capital C, church, and it's those who are truly redeemed, not those who are pretending to be redeemed, the false believers. All right, There's still a people and a land and a God, All right, because in Romans 4.13, we see that Abraham, who was to be heir of the world, received it through faith, not by works. So, In Romans, Paul takes a look at the land of Israel and then he applies that and expands it out to the world as Abraham and his children would be heirs of the world. Okay, so in this sense, the land of Israel is a type or a picture of the world. And Israel as a covenant people is a type and picture of Christ. Jesus is the new Israel. And he inherits the world, and us through him as sons and daughters of of the Lord. So now, with that in mind, how would that principle, the principle of, if my people who are called by my name will turn away from their sins, repent, I will heal their land. What What is that promise? What does that mean? Okay, well, it had certainly a spiritual and physical meaning, to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. But the principle hasn't really changed. There are still God's people today. And so I think the application would be, very simple one, is for us Christians, if we, who are Christian, we are God's people, we love the Lord, if we have fallen into sin, maybe we are doing it unintentionally, or maybe we have backslidden, to use more modern phrase, right, then if we repent of our sins and truly turn to the Lord and humble ourselves, right, God is going to do something. Now, it's not a works-based thing, and they're going to get to that later. They're going to say that one of our mistakes is to take this and turn this into a law. There's a difference between a law and God describing how he works, Okay, cuz God is not arbitrary and we're going to that's going to be an important point here is that God is not arbitrary. He does have a nature and a character and he has told us that there are certain things that he does. And one of the things that he does th- in and out throughout scripture is when a people repent, truly repent, he shows mercy. Okay? And it's not a law to say, well, I can force God to show mercy. That's the whole point. Repentance, true repentance, means you're not trying to force God. You are simply trusting in Him, and you are falling in your face before Him, and humbling yourself before Him, throwing yourself at His feet. That will be met, God has said, He, he responds to that with mercy. And the act of repentance is itself a gift, a gift of faith. It's all by God's grace. The fact that we have even repented is a movement by the Holy Spirit. But if a modern Christian were to do that, how would God heal them and their land? Now, initially, of course, we would say, well, they're justified. Their sins are forgiven. Okay, so they're in right standing with God. So there's that shalom. That peace with God, right? But they can also begin to have peace with others because if they've been living in sin, then they've probably been mistreating people or being poor stewards of the things that God has given them. But when they repent and they seek to honor the Lord and live as Christians, well, then there is going to be changes in the relationships around them and in the way they do things. And I believe that since God formed the world a certain way to function a certain way, that those changes, which line up with God's character and what he wants us to do, those changes will result in some sort of blessing. And it doesn't necessarily mean riches, healthy, wealthy, wise, you know, prosperity the gospel thing. But, I mean, if you've been spending a lot of your money on, on gambling or on alcohol or drugs, and when you, when you turn to the Lord in repentance and faith— somehow that money stops being uh, lost. You stop spending it on those things, and and maybe you reconsider your budgetary uh, habits. So there are changes that happen, and relationships can be healed, and things can get better. And I don't mean like materially always better. That's not always the case. But if it's not going to get materially better, it's probably because of some sort of persecution that the person might be facing. But the point is that God has told us this is how he tends to function, and we can we can know his character, and we can rest in that. That's, that's the point. So there is application there, and, and this is going to be another key factor. Does the application only apply to individuals? Yes, I can apply 2 Chronicles 7.14 as an individual Christian to my life, But I cannot apply it to my family. I cannot apply it covenantally in the sense that, well, as a father and a mother, as parents, my wife and I would repent and seek to apply that passage to our lives. And even if our children are not believers, is there still some way in which us turning to the Lord as parents can bring healing to our household, to the family? even if not every single individual member of the family is elect or is a believer. And then you could take that and apply the same principle outward and expand it. Well, how would that apply to a business? If a large business, mostly led by Christians, were to take that verse and apply it, how would that affect the work community? How would that affect their employees, whom not all of them are Christians? Right? Would that bring any kind of healing, and what does that healing look like even among those who are not elect, and then apply that to a, a community or even to a nation? And I will get to later how you know the the topic about nations can't have souls. I think that's an unfair statement because nations can certainly sin, and nations can repent as scripture
2: makes clear all throughout. So let's continue. Well, what isn't the problem with interpreting the verse, no. where to begin? I wonder if it doesn't behoove us to take a look at the verse itself. Again, like we said in the last episode, we'll say in this episode, and we'll say in every episode, read the context. What is going on here? Is this a general proverb that describes any nation ever to exist, that if they just have a bunch of God-fearing Christians in them, that those nations will be God's nations?
0: Well, no, no. See... I wouldn't say that they would be God's nations. I would say that wherever God's people are, there the kingdom of God is. Now, in some places, God's people are very few. Very few. So maybe you have one household of, you know, that you could say, there's God's people there. Again, that doesn't mean that every single person in the household is elect. Okay? And you could say in a community, same idea. So, you know, if God's people are very numerous, and I and I do mean God's people, as in the elect, as in born again, regenerate Christians. If God's people are numerous in a space, when they apply that passage, does the promise of healing affect them in that space? Okay, or or must it always be individual? And you cannot apply that verse in any corporate setting. And it's not meant to be a, a proverb per se. It is um, a promise, and a promise is not a law. You can't make God do it, but what it should do is it reminds you of who God is and what his character is like, and you can rest in that. He's not arbitrary, Uh, and I'm going to mention this right now, but uh, we have to understand that in Islam, God or Allah is arbitrary. Okay, you could do everything right and still go to hellfire. Or you could even do everything wrong for most of your life, die in jihad, and you go to heaven. So, there is an arbitrariness, in some sense, regarding Allah. Um, You can't really ever constrain Him, quote-unquote constrain Him, because He is pure power. And power, in that sense, must be arbitrary uh, for it to be truly free power. But the God of the Bible, our God, is not like that. And he even says he cannot lie. There are certain things that God cannot do, not because he lacks power, but because it's not in his nature to do it, all right? So, recognizing God's nature and character and how he relates to his people, and the general trend is that if his people repent and God knows what true repentance looks like, he can tell the difference between fake and real repentance— So when I use the word repentance, I mean the real kind. So when God's people repent or when any people repent, he responds to them in mercy. An example, Nineveh and Jonah, where Jonah is preaching to the city of Nineveh, not just individuals, and as a city, it repents. Uh, So would you say the city has a soul? Does Nineveh have a soul? Not in the same sense that a human has a soul. But Nineveh has sins, and Nineveh can repent, Nineveh can be damned, and Nineveh can be saved. And even Jesus will use that language in the New Testament when he chastises Capernaum and says, well, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you. If they had seen the things that you'd seen, they would have repented. And he's talking corporate language there. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And Jesus is bringing judgment and calling judgment upon Capernaum as a city, not just the individuals in it. Does that mean that every single individual in that city was damned to hell? No, it does not mean that. But it does mean something about what Capernaum is like. So let's continue on.
2: Or does the verse have a very specific context in which it is spoken? And in this particular instance, this is in a context, a historical context with a very important role for the history of Israel. It's when Solomon, it's in 2 Chronicles, again, chapter 7, Solomon has built the temple to God in Israel, and he is calling the people there to dedicate the temple. And if we go back to verse 11 of Second Chronicles 7, this is what it says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. Now notice this. Solomon is being told by God, I have chosen Israel. You're my people. You've built this house for me, which I'm allowing you to do. I don't need houses. I'm doing pretty good up in heaven. Thanks for the vacation spot, though. That's not, that's not right. <laughs> but he is saying, like, I don't need a house, but I promise. I'm putting my promise on this place, and it's my covenantal promise. The similar promise I made back in Leviticus when I told the people that if punishing them for breaking my covenant, if they turn to me in repentance, I will forgive them and I will heal the damage that has been done. So that is, again, 100%
0: agree with everything he just said. Context is important. Understanding who the covenant people are is important. But one thing to also keep in mind is that when God spoke to Israel, he warned them not to do the things that the nations before them had done. And so, that means that God does deal with nations and not just the nation of Israel. And I think we'll have to get into a discussion as to are nations in covenant with God at all, okay? Or is it just the nation of Israel that that God is in covenant with? Or could the other nations be said to be um, having broken covenant with God? But we, we have to understand that Israel uh, was told don't be like the nations around you. It's for their sins that they're being cast out and vomited out of the land. And if you do them, you get cast out and you get vomited out of the land. And Israel is also supposed to be a light to the nations. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses even says that you've been given such a wonderful law and, and the people will around you will say, wow, look at their wise God and their wise law. Now, uh, Israel was supposed to be a, an example, uh, a model for the nations around them, and that the nations through Israel, Israel would kind of function as a mediator, but through Israel, those nations would come to the Lord, and that's why Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the new Israel in which people are brought back to God. That's important to keep in mind, but in general, I very
2: much agree with what he's saying so far, so let's continue. He's saying, you can look at this temple and remember that promise that I am making. I'm attaching my promise to the temple. I will be present here. That's what he's saying. He's not giving a general rule for every land that exists from here on out.
0: Well, okay. That's not, I would not entirely agree with that. He was not giving as a general rule for every land throughout. It depends on where God's people are. Again, I would say God's people inherit the world as Paul said in Romans 4, the children of Abraham are heirs of the world, and God's people are are, are a kingdom that is growing. And as Daniel talks about the small stone not made of human hands, it is smashing all the mountains and growing up and filling the whole earth. Jesus talks about yeast going through a whole loaf, or he talks about a mustard seed that grows and becomes a, a very large tree. So the whole point, though, is that wherever God's people are, there the kingdom of God is. Where the spirit of God dwells, okay, and so it's still, it's still a land, a people, and a God. It still is that, okay. And, And all spaces in that sense are being made sacred in that sense, okay. Until the whole world is covered with the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the deep. With that said, wherever God's people are, there is an application for this verse, and it's not just individual. It could apply. To families, a, a business, a community, or even perhaps a nation, but it, it depends on where God's people are at. So not just a random nation could could like claim this verse, but if that nation, let's just, I'm just going to make up a number, were seventy percent, seventy percent actually regenerate people, act I'm, I'm you know actually repentant, actually God's people seventy percent of that space, call it China, call it wherever, make up a country, if you want to call it, make up a country, but 70% of that people are believers, could those people apply that verse in any sense beyond the individual sense? That is an important question. I think the answer to that is yes, they can.
3: And I think to be abundantly clear, God is not making a covenant to any country today as he did With Israel,
0: I agree in the sense that God is not making a specific covenant with that nation for them to be his covenant people like Israel was. The new covenant people of God are those united to Christ, the capital C Church. But does God deal with nations in a covenantal fashion, fashion still today? Maybe we could say no, the covenant that God made was only to the people of Israel, But does God still deal with nations? Does he still have dealings with them? And that I would say, yes. Again, example, Babylon, Nineveh. God is calling Nineveh to repent. They repent and God has mercy upon them. So he's still dealing with nations as nations. He he still interacts with them in that regard. He lifts them up. He brings them low. So can a nation today enter into covenant with God? That's an important question. And there are some historical, even modern historical examples of that happening, such as the covenanters. Now, perhaps you could say that the covenanters of Scotland were in covenant with each other and they wanted to honor God. Is it so different than a marriage covenant? So if two people, two Christians, get married, are they covenanting with each other? Or are they covenanting with God? Is God involved in that covenant in any particular way? Um, And I think we would still have to say, yeah, I mean, he's not covenanting with them. Maybe he is. Um, But God is involved in the marriage covenant. Okay, so that's a corporate covenant. That's not just one person. Does God, is God involved in a family covenant? between parents and their children? The Presbyterians would say yes in a certain sense, and I would say yes in a different kind of sense. Okay? Why does that corporate level of covenanting stop at the family? Could a business covenant with each other, and could God be involved in that covenant? Could a nation do that too? So we have to understand... One of the questions is, does God only now covenant with individuals? Uh, does he covenant with groups? And at what level does Does the group? Does, is the line drawn when it comes to groups? But I think everyone would still agree that God deals with nations, but maybe you just wouldn't call it a covenantal type of dealing. Let's continue.
3: And I think if we have that as the sort of starting place, we can then see where this applies or see how it applies and to whom directly. And then, as you said, Mike, in a previous episode, then saying, okay, how does Christ apply to this? And then what does this mean for us because of that? But really, I think even if we just stop and say, okay, we are not this sort of blessed nation that we are superimposing ourselves as Israel and then applying promises for Israel directly to us. And I think that's a tendency for any Bible reader to just put themselves in the biblical text as if Christianity is not like a historically oriented faith with its roots in a particular people, Israel. I think when we begin to see that, it helps us reading any passage, in particular, this passage that we often associate with, you know, national revival. I've heard this passage applied to, well, if we do this, we'll return to our Judeo-Christian values and things like that. This sort of golden age, quote unquote, of, you know, not just civil religion, but like a meaningful Christianity that does make... An impact in the public's place. Okay, yeah, we don't want to apply it so willy-nilly out of context.
0: We have to keep the context in mind and and do our work very carefully before we do this with any passage of Scripture, to be sure. And there's a historical context to this passage. And I would agree that no nation could say that it is a replacement of Israel. No nation could do that. Now, today, nations can be blessed. I'm pretty sure—I don't know why he said that. That you know maybe he meant blessing as in old covenant Israel style blessing, but even then uh, we do see the same kind of ideas and themes all throughout scripture when God deals with Egypt, the curses of what the plagues or with Babylon, uh, look at Isaiah, look at Ezekiel with regard to uh, promises and and blessings and curses upon non-israelites, assyria, babylon, persia. So so God is still dealing with those nations and those nations are still either receiving blessings or curses. Judgment still happens upon wicked nations. Sodom and Gomorrah were not God's covenant people. They received judgment on in this life uh, on the earth because of what? Was it arbitrary? God just decided I'm I feel like judging them today no it was tied to their behavior it was tied to how they were living uh, there and god's mercy is tied to their repentance it's not a law okay because repentance is still a gift from god it's by grace alone so it's not a law that oh lord i have repented now i force you to bless me and have mercy upon me that's that's not how this is nations are still blessed today, uh, clearly, uh, people can be blessed. Even unbelievers can be blessed. Common grace can be said to be a blessing. But let's just leave that topic aside. Uh, A family of Christians, even if not all of them are elect, can be blessed. Okay? Does that corporate blessing only stop at family level? Or can it go to a higher level, such as a community, such as a Uh, business, or even a nation? Can a nation, if it's made up of a significant amount of regenerate individuals, can that nation be blessed? And is there anything wrong with a desire for the nation to repent and the vast majority of people to turn to the Lord so that we would receive mercy? I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, that is a, a, a very much of a common thing. And then look at the king of Nineveh. The king of Nineveh under Jonah, uh, Jonah preaches the gospel, the king of Nineveh repents, and he calls his city to follow in his example, and to mourn, and put on sackcloth and ashes. And they do. The king does it, the king of Nineveh does it because he loves his people, and he wants his city not to be destroyed. He He wants a blessing, not a curse. That's, that's what he wants. So again, I still don't quite understand. I think they're, I think they're making some connections there that I don't think are fair. They're, they're, I think they're doing a little bit of straw man here. They're kind of attacking a version of this that is not what I would say what the vast majority of people would be saying. I could be wrong about that. I don't think necessarily that people are saying that America, for example, is the new Israel. I don't think that. I think they're trying to apply the verses properly. Sometimes they speed a little bit and they got to be careful. They got to slow down and show their work before they start just, you know, ripping the passages and applying it to themselves. That is a danger, and I would agree to that.
1: Read it in context, and we've been saying this again and again. You read it in context, then you read it in the context of the flow of the history of redemption with Christ as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And then you get to 1 Peter 2, nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, Egypt, into his marvelous light, Canaan. All of this, that whole verse that is back to Deuteronomy, the language of if you, it's conditional, if you follow my my rules, my regulations, you follow my law, you follow this covenant that you swore at Mount Sinai, then you will be for me a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for my own possession. Here, there is are no ifs, ands, or buts. He says- In the Peter verse. In the Peter verse, right. you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a mm-hmm. holy nation, a people for his own possession. So, this emphatic, indicative, this- promise that he just places on who's he talking to he's talking to jews and gentiles in one body that is the chosen nation the royal priesthood there is none other Mm -hmm. not even israel if israel is no longer a geopolitical chosen nation royal priesthood holy nation then where do we get off saying our gentile country is Mm -hmm. right
0: again i agree with i don't know 80% Eighty percent of what he just said, that it's very clear, First Peter talking about God's people, as in the new covenant people, those united to Christ. They are a holy people, a nation, right? So God is forming his kingdom here on earth, and it's an already but not yet kind of kingdom, with Christ as King, of course. Now, in that sense, certainly no nation, no nation. Not even, and I would agree with this, not even the current geopolitical secular nation of Israel can say, well, well, we are, we are God's covenant people in the sense that Old Testament Israel was God's covenant people. No, there's only one covenant people of God. It's made up of people from every tribe and tongue, and that people forms a new nation. Now, at the same time, those people are scattered all over this world. And they have multiple labels, if you will, because they're God's people, but they're also, you know, in this township. They also live in this state. They also live in this nation. They also work at this corporation or whatever. They have this job. So we all have multiple identities, if you will. They're kind of nesting dolls. The, the core identity, the most important one, is our identity in Christ. But we have other identities like a pilot or an engineer or a teacher or doctor, father, mother. You know, these are lots of different identities that we have. And as for my example, I am a Pennsylvanian. That's one of my identities because this is where God placed me. I'm also a Christian. That's my key and core identity is in Christ. I'm also an American. That's another one of my identities. So where I am where God's people are, is there any sense in which those people in that place and at that time can receive some kind of blessing because of their repentance? Is there any way that that happens? And I would say that that it does. So, a nation per se, like, can't claim to be the new Israel, but a nation could say, we want people to repent you know, we might get like a, a president perhaps that is a true Christian and calls all people to fasting and repentance and putting on sackcloth and ashes, right? And and calling for a, a week-long repentance or just a whole a whole time of repentance and, and, and fasting, right? And if that were to happen in a nation, would God do anything? Would he respond in some sense? And we would agree that that is not a law, it's not a work, and this is where I know that Dr. Horton here was saying, you know, the if passages of Deuteronomy, simply because something is an if, doesn't mean it's a law, in the same sense of works-based salvation, or works-based justification, or anything like that. I mean, because we can say this to any person, if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. So, is that a law? Well, no. It's not a law. It's descriptive. There's a proscriptive to it. You are called to repent and believe. All people are called to repent and believe. But it's true. It's a truth. If anyone repents and believes in Christ, they will be saved. But we recognize that those who do that have already been moved by the Holy Spirit. It was a gift. So grace is still there, 100% there in the Old Testament. If those people, yeah. And if anybody today repents and believes in Christ, they can claim First Peter 2. They can say that they are a part of the Covenant people, that they are a whole they're part of the holy nation. They can say that if they repent and believe, if they are if they are saved. But that's God's doing. Okay, they're they're responding to God. They're they're doing something, but it's not by their own effort. It's not a law. It's not a works based system of salvation.
3: So, are there instances where you guys see this
2: going on today? Oh uh, no, no, nope. never. Uh, this is <laughs> thank goodness, thank God, we're not like those sinners over there. Right? Yeah, yeah, again, we we've brought this up a couple of times now, but every time it's Fourth of July, this verse comes up. But this is where it gets really dangerous. Is I will hear a lot of preachers preach with this kind of verse in mind towards the American church, and then they will say something like this. The reason why God is punishing our nation is because Christians are not faithful enough. Christians are not doing enough. If we, as the church in America, whatever actually that means, which I'm not right. sure we know what that which means, church? what are we talking about here?
0: Well, hold on a second. What are we talking about here? The church refers to God's people, those who are saved. you are not talking about um, one denomination. The church... I use that capital C church is God's redeemed people in whatever denomination they find themselves to be in.
2: Let's continue. The Lutherans are the only real <laughs> true church. So <laughs> I know and that's even there, yeah. which denomination? It's Missouri. Uh, <laughs> but we do this, and we so, suddenly we turn this verse, which is from God to Solomon for the sake of Israel, and it's a gospel verse. Turn to me in your sufferings, and I will heal you. I will forgive you. It's a good thing. Suddenly, it becomes again a law verse to american christians who are now being blamed for all the problems that are happening in the nation and the pastors are saying it's your fault if you would finally just pray if you would finally do this then god would come and heal our land it's turning gospel into law it's making a promise that god hasn't made so in actuality it's a breaking of the second commandment yeah, you could say third commandment, commandment we would say second commandment it's you're taking god's name in vain mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, this is where we're going to be a, a hard disagree on this one because I would say that those people are actually, they are applying the verse because who are God's people? The church, okay? If the church isn't doing its job, if we're not obeying Jesus and making disciples of all nations and baptizing them and bearing the fruit of the Spirit, uh, loving our neighbor and doing doing those things, if we're not doing what Jesus calls us to do and we're just sitting back and just, you know, hey, we're saved, we're good, I don't either worry about anything else. I'm just going to enjoy my life here, and you know, I'm a Christian. I don't really feel the need to do anything beyond just continuing as a Christian. So, um, if we just act like that, what do we think is going to happen? Our our neighbors are not going to hear the gospel. That you know, that's who's going to who's going to hear unless someone is sent, unless someone is someone preaches to them, as Paul would say in Romans. So it does start with the church. If my people, if my people, that's, that's God's people, the church, if my people who are called by my name, okay, so they're Christians, will do these things, will humble themselves and repent, turn from the wicked ways, I will heal their, heal their land. So what land are we in? Let's so just say, you know, the church in America, what land are we in? Well, wherever the, wherever God's people are, that's the land that they're in, because the whole world has been given to Christ. Abraham is heir of the world, as Paul says in Romans 4.13. Okay, so wherever God's people are, that is their land. That is where that is where they dwell, and it does not necessarily mean that every single person is elect same thing for a household if, if if fathers and mothers who are Christian are not doing their job, serving the Lord and leading their families well, it's going to have repercussions on their family on their household and so maybe fathers and mothers do need to hear, "Hey, it begins in your home. What's going on in your home begins with you, fathers." Just like it began with Adam. God came to Adam and said, where are you? Don't shirk responsibility, Christian fathers. It begins with you. So you need to um, lead your families well. And when you don't, clearly, you know, bad things can happen. Serpents can get inside, all right? And if parents and fathers and mothers do the right thing, and, and what God calls them to do, there is mercy. There is blessing. It's not a law. It's it's God revealing his character, in his nature. It is a promise, but we all know that it cannot be done apart from the Holy Spirit. It cannot be done outside of God's grace. We can't make it happen. We can't just will ourselves to be better fathers. No, the only way to heal the household as parents is to throw ourselves at the feet of Christ. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to We're going to seek to honor the Lord in all that we say and do in in every area of our lives. And then that will overflow into our household. And even if not all of our sons and daughters are elect and regenerate, they will still receive common grace blessings because God's people are there. Because where God's people are is a blessing to those around them. Simple fact. I mean, people, and that's, why is it that there are so many non-Christians inside the church, lowercase c church? Because a lot of them get the blessing of a normal, a normal, quote unquote, place to live where people aren't crazy, okay? Where people are honest and they have honest dealings and they don't lie to you and they don't steal from you. There's common blessings there. So I'm going to stop for now. We're about halfway done. Um, So I I probably have to knock out one or maybe two more episodes. I think this is a good place to stop will continue here next time. I hope that this has been useful, helpful, and informative for you, and I encourage you to think of these things, reflect on them yourself, and, and try to figure out where do you land in all this, and, and how does scripture apply? But I don't disagree with, with these guys entirely. I would say the vast majority I do agree with, but I think that maybe they're misunderstanding the other side, or misrepresenting the other side. And that's why we're trying to have these kinds of conversations. So, with that, if you have any questions or comments or want to talk about this this episode, uh, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or go to Governed by God on Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter, and uh, contact me there. Uh, please share this show with, with friends, family, coworkers. Again, I think these are very important conversations and we need to be having these conversations. Um, more often and not just ignore these topics. So until next time then, take care and God bless.